Welcome to the PT on the Rex podcast. I'm your host, Jacob, and as always, I'll have Reagan with me. How are you, Reagan? I'm good, man. I'm really happy to keep talking about some of this uh, pain science stuff and how we can hopefully do better as clinicians going forward when we go to school. Yeah, so this is going to be part two of our podcast about communication with patients. In part one, we talked through the points made in the Darlow and the Sticks and Stones article. And so we're just going to go get right into it with another quote from the Darlow article. All right, so... As always, the quotes from the Darlow article are taken directly from a patient because it was a qualitative study. So quote unquote, basically all I've been kind of told by physios is to work on my core. I had an abortion because I didn't think I could have a baby. I didn't think I could handle it, carrying it and having the extra weight on my stomach. Close quote, chronic low back pain, patient number 11. Man, I, I hear this, and I, I read this paper probably, oh, I don't know, five or six years ago, and this is the quote that really resonated with me and stuck with me. And we started our journal club here on campus. Like This was the one I was like, we need to start with this article because this just goes to show how much of an impact we can have on these people. I mean, she was tested as weak by physios and Pilates instructors, and she chose to have an abortion because she didn't know if her body could literally handle carrying a baby. I mean, talk about life altering. You not only changed her life, but this whole other decision she had to make, or she felt like she had to make because of what clinicians have told her. It it scares me, man. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to in part one, you know, just think about why you're saying the things you're saying and uh, try to focus more on empowering people. You don't have to beat people down, you know, instead of saying you're super weak, say we can get stronger. Like, and, and also like understand what you're testing and why you're testing and what it means. Cause sometimes we don't know if what we're testing means anything. I mean, that's a whole other rabbit hole. I would love to get another conversation going on that, but I could rant on that myself for probably 30 or 40 minutes. So we're going to put a pause on that. That might be the next series we go. So instead of ranting, we're going to go to the next article. It's Listening and Therapy, Patient Interviewing from a Pain Science Perspective by Diner et al. So the aim of this paper is to illustrate how a patient interview is far more than just collecting info, but rather a critical component to establishing an alliance with a patient and a fundamental first step in T&E. So the question goes, like, what are your top questions to ask patients? Like, what do you what do you do? And this is something as well that we are not super experienced, but also from this article, it has good points too. And we've had a little bit of experience. Like, what do you think, Reagan? What, what questions? So I think we need to take a quick step back. We used uh, T&E because that, that was a quote from the article. T&E is just pain science education. Um, now to go forward, like, what do we actually do with these people when they're in front of us? And... I mean, that's a whole other rabbit hole you could go into depending on how they present. But a mnemonic that was presented back in 97, so, geez, over 20 years ago, it's long. It's A, B, C, D, E, F, and then W, um, which I thought was funny. But <laughs> it goes through and it tries to assess a bunch of different factors that will affect this person's pain experience. A, being attitudes and beliefs, B, behaviors, C, compensation issues, D, diagnosis and then eventual treatment, E, emotions, F, family, and then W, work. The there Following this mnemonic is a table with specific questions for each of those, um, we'll say tenants, aspects of this person's experience. And... It, it even goes in to show the information gained from the question. So if we just start off with attitudes and beliefs, because that's what I think a lot of this will end up centering around, 
what do you think is the cause of your pain is a question that I don't hear often in physical therapy clinics. Shoot, I don't even ask that. Right, and I mean, me yeah. neither. Thinking about it, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's right here in front of me. I know I can do better. But some of the information you get from just asking that question is, how fearful are these people? Are they currently catastrophizing? Or do they have maladaptive beliefs? And do they feel like this rehabilitation journey that they're going that they're undertaking with you is going to be more passive versus active and empowering? And and this table just continues. It's a long table. I'm not going to read it to you. It is table one in the paper, but I do highly suggest that you get into it. So keeping on with different in-depth questions. So some other questions they have in here is like, what do you, or we already mentioned this, what do you think is going on with your blank pain? What do you think should be done for your pain? Why do you think you still hurt? What does it take to get you better? Where do you see yourself in three years in regard to your shoulder pain? Like things like that are all solid questions that you can add in. Or even like this one's powerful. What gives you hope? Oh, yeah. Well, what, what do you think will empower you on this journey that you're currently undergoing to feel better? Um, I even think that if I could flip a switch and remove all your pain, what things would – like what would you be able to do again? And yeah. that shows like patient goals and that helps – format goals and what you actually should be going towards. And then beyond that, it gets them thinking on something that isn't the pain because they're coming to you, they're in pain, they're experiencing this thing because, well, we don't know why, but they're in seeing you because they can't live the life that they want to. So if you were able to magically take that away and you remind them of what they want to do, that in and of itself can be powerful. But that, I think that those questions are super, super interesting, but they're only really selected for people that you feel are more centrally sensitized is the word that they use in this um, article. And I think that's a pretty broad spectrum, which I think would be another great topic for us to talk about. But it's when you feel, when the clinician feels that they need to kind of go away from the general like, oh, you have an ATF ankle sprain it's more of the this is very chronic it's pretty widespread and you need to delve more into their beliefs surrounding this experience they're, they're undergoing and like if with that they're mentioning like central sensitization it's table two clinical recognition of dominating pain mechanisms via signs and symptoms they have three different categories they have nociceptive peripheral neurogenic and central sensitization so reagan brief synopsis hit us with it so we talk no susceptive pain. This is the general like, oh, I have an ankle sprain like I just mentioned. This is to be expected like, oh, my ankle kind of hurts when I'm walking. I feel unstable on it and it's nothing seems outlandish. Like it hurts whatever makes sense for this patient. For some people that might be a 9 out of 10 because they don't have much experience with pain. But you talk to a combat vet, that might be a 2 out of 10 because they've been in some kind of other traumatic event, which <laughs> would completely change the scale for people. And then you have something called peripheral neurogenic pain. And it's, these things are more like those neural screens that we'll do initially with someone. They'll be more dermatomal in nature. They might even prevent present along a peripheral nerve, like a, a femoral nerve or a... Um, I don't know, median ulnar, any of these nerves that we would typically test with some, some kind of neurodynamic testing. And then there's central sensitization, which I mentioned before is its own rabbit hole. But that's where things are more um, 
centrally driven, obviously central sensitization, but more of like spinal cord, brain, and that is very, very interesting to me, and that's my own little pet topic that I want to learn more about. But what makes this hard clinically is that these these aren't like, they don't always present separately. There's nothing to say that an ankle sprain can't present in someone who is centrally sensitized and now they have both of these things going on, which when you treat in something like a pro bono clinic, that's very commonly what happens. A lot of these things are overlapping and they moderate each other. And you talk about things like central sensitization might be moderating how much pain they have from their ankle and this ankle sprain. So they're not um, divorced and dichotomous and completely standalone. It's more like a Venn diagram that's very heavily overlapping. Yeah, one point I wanted to mention from the article is talking about like, let's say someone comes in and yes, like Reagan's saying, like it's not this or that, like it's it's all of it, but if they have more dominant nociceptive input mechanism with lower even medium risk, a physical exam can focus more on potential biomedical and biomechanical issues, or like high tech is what they term this. And that's more like contributing to the pain state. Which makes sense. I mean, oh, I went up for a jumper and I came down on someone's foot, my ankle turned and guess what? Now I have an ankle sprain. And that's the the common like differential diagnosis that you're kind of learning in school. Yeah, and then they, they say in contrast, a patient with a high score of psychosocial risk factors and a dominant central pain mechanism should be approached using a physical exam with less emphasis on biomedical issues, but rather large physiological movements, often referred to as low tech. And to continue on with this, they talk about how a PT should also consider whether pain reproduction during the physical exam is an appropriate goal for someone in this group. Like, that's super powerful because I know we talk about in our own, like, going through uh, evals and things. It's like, how much does this hurt? What's your pain? What's this? And we don't really take a step back and be like, is that truly worth it? And, like, how do I even go through an eval without doing that? Oh, yeah. I mean, and that even calls into the question of these red flags, which obviously it's very, very important for us to be able to find these red flags in patients, especially with the push for direct access for physical therapists. If we can't correctly identify something that needs to be referred out, that is a huge problem for the patient in front of us and we're not doing them good. But you look at this and it asks if pain provocation movements are truly important with this individual. And that it's interesting because you're fighting two sides of the battle here of maybe me having this person squat isn't what I'm looking for and looking to see if it causes pain. But at the same time, we need to refer out when we can't directly reproduce movements and nothing really makes sense. So I think this is one of those things where we need to have some clinicians in here to kind of talk us through it. And I read this and it's just a lot of question marks. I just don't, I don't think I have the experience to truly be able to differentiate things like that. It probably comes down to pattern recognition and like that gut feeling that you get, which I think ultimately is a pattern recognition thing. Yeah, so going back to the paper, there's a quote, and it's from the paper. It says, like, think about how the patient is doing, the perspective of their own problem, how the problem impacts their life and vice versa, and how their lifestyle impacts their problem. So it's all this, like, back and forth between life and problem and problem and life, and it's literally the interplay. That's how it is. Yeah, and everything affects everything else. And um, this person in front of you is a dynamic system. Their life is constantly changing, and all these things around them um they affect each other and being able to 
talk about these things and get on level with them and on an even playing field like that is how you build a relationship with these patients they, I mean this is therapeutic alliance and there is a ton of research on therapeutic alliance and relationship building between patients and clinicians and how that might even matter more than anything that you have your patient do in the clinic or at home if they like you and you empower them and they feel like you're in their corner then that might be all they need to start having things shift in the right direction yeah with that it's like don't jump in and just start doing education immediately like make sure you're actually listening to your patient and considering when you should educate like that's i think something that's powerful with the therapeutic alliance also another point is like allow for shared decision making to take place better outcomes when the patient feels that they have a choice of the intervention plan and care like one thing like the patient specific functional scale like they pick activities they rate how they are now and then at e or the reval you rate it again and then the best part about an outcome measure like that is that they will write things that are immediately relevant to them. And then if you are able to frame your intervention, your plan of care to those things, that in and of itself is powerful because it shows that you listen to them. It shows that you're taking their thoughts and concerns into consideration. And now the plan of care that you came up with together at this point is salient to them. It makes sense. And as long as you educate them in a way that is empowering, it's hard for me to view this in a way that isn't going to have the patient want to do these things because ultimately it's going to feel like their idea. And then when you look at the, like the placebo literature, and that's what everyone wants to talk about right now, and I, I won't get on my high horse about placebo and leveraging all that, but there literally is a causative effect between expectation of treatment and the pain-related outcome, because pain is just a perception. There is no, like, there's a ligament, right? You can see it, you can feel it, you can touch it. Pain is just a threat response in the body, and if you can placebo these people into feeling like they have power over the treatment, the plan of care, and it makes sense coming from an expert, and because you can leverage your expertise and convince them basically <laughs> that what you're going to do with them is going to get them better, that immediately in their mind means, oh look, I'm going to get better because I came to this place, talked to this expert, and they listen to me and my experience, and now we're working together, and look at that, they're gonna do the thing, and then they feel better about it, their perception of the problem hopefully is lessened, and then the intervention, the plan of care they came up with you is going to hopefully have the effect you want. Yeah, and then, then just going back to the point about how psychosocial factors often are better predictors of pain than like the damage or the side of the pain. So like, what are things that we can do with this information? A couple of thoughts I had is maybe focus on red flag questions related to depression, check in on that, that's pretty easy. You could potentially even look at something like an SF12 and see where they rate on the mental score on that front, which that is very uh, much similar to red flag, depression questions, things like that. And then going back to like simple nutrition advice type of thing, which make sure it's simple stuff they can find from government sites, don't become a dietitian, we are not dietitians. Focus on sleep, general physical activity, uh, all of that stuff can be ways to 
create little behavior change that could lead to big impacts. And Reagan had a couple of other thoughts related to this. Yeah, I mean, first things first, I'm always going to advocate for patient just general physical activity because if you look at the data, people that actually meet these physical activity guidelines, it's it's pretty pitiful. It's close to a quarter of people actually meeting these between aerobic and resistance training. And if you can empower someone to go do these things, I mean, health outcomes when people actually meet these guidelines are solid. Um, an idea that was presented in this, which has a bunch of neuroscience support, which is still over my head and I want to learn more about, is the idea of this thing that they term the pain neuromatrix. And we talk about neuroplasticity a lot, especially in our neural classes, and how motor learning is affected by neuroplasticity and it takes time and brain rewiring. And we always view this in such a positive light, but this can have a negative a negative um, result. And when a body is in a state of chronic pain, there will literally be brain changes looking at cortical mapping in response to the pain. And these this pain neuromatrix, it's literally a rewiring of the brain is at least how they described it. And it doesn't just need to be movement that can stimulate this. This is what's crazy is it can even be seeing someone else get hurt. I mean, how often do we see someone get hurt playing sports? And like, if you have a history of a knee injury, your knee probably hurts a little bit watching someone tear an ACL. Yep. <laughs> I've tore my ACL. <laughs> Definitely do. Yeah. I mean, this, it, it doesn't need to be like surgery, injury, but like, Literally smelling something that reminds you of this experience can trigger that. You see something, it can trigger it. So this also extends into things that we hear. So Jacob mentioned this earlier about always saying pain, pain, pain in an evaluation. And like, yes, they're in pain. They're in pain. They're in your office. You know they're in pain. Why do we keep saying this word? Every time we say it, it shows that there is activity in this pain neural matrix to get them to relive this experience. And it might in and of itself sensitize them. So this is something that I've tried to stop doing is I don't try to ask my patients, what was your pain today? One to 10, how does that feel? And all this stuff, I, I've made it a point to try to, every time someone comes into the clinic, not talk about the problems that they're having for the first five or 10 minutes. I try to connect with them as a person because that's what they are. They're a person, you're a person. And if you can connect with them, build that relationship, build the therapeutic alliance. I mean, I think, like I'd mentioned previously, that can be more powerful than anything else you do. Maybe it's just a break from their pain for 10 minutes of the day. Yeah, whenever Reagan mentioned that, Matt, mentioned that to me, I was like, wow, that's a really good point because, I mean, I don't do that. <laughs> no, it's and, hard. Yeah, and then even uh, with the whole pain 1 to 10, I know I, when I'm either at a loss of what's exactly going on or I just don't know, like, what to do, it's like the crutch you lean on. And, like, you have to create a new crutch. Like, it can't be this thing. And maybe it's to connect with your patients. That'd be another thing that'd be awesome to talk to clinicians about. Like, what do you do when you know someone is going to perpetuate on their pain? And then you keep asking about pain. Like, what do you do? Uh, so I guess moving on from this topic some, going back to the article, it talked about how more widespread body charts can show more related to central sensitization. Makes sense. Nothing too groundbreaking there. And then also, when PTs get the sense that a patient is presenting with more central sensation symptoms, 
it may be more relevant to dive into the patient's current beliefs surrounding their pain, experience of their care in the past and present, and their outlook on recovery. Some of the questions we've all talked about before. Yeah, those questions um, that Jacob started reading earlier, table three, I believe, um, those that was the context of the table, is when you feel like these, these patients in front of you are more essentially sensitized on that spectrum, um, it's probably more pertinent to talk about these things and try to get a sense of where they are the whole article's premise was T&E, right? Pain, science, education, but specifically with the guise of being therapeutic. So I'm not just gonna start spewing pain science to a patient that just sprained an ankle. Like that is much less relevant <laughs> to someone who's been in pain for 20 years and their back always hurts and they're chronically stressed and they have two kids and they're divorced. And you know, it's, it's, there's some people where that is just more relevant. And it's important to recognize that in the person in front of you. And that's kind of going back to what that alliance, that relationship building is. If nothing else, it provides a jumping off point to start asking these questions and understanding where they're coming from so you can make examples and analogies that are more relevant to them. Yeah, so to finish off this episode, one question that I thought of that I thought would be interesting to talk about is like, how do you work with a patient that's coming to PT because they are, quote, scared to be hurt again? And this actually happened to me in our PT clinic in that this um, person was coming to the clinic for low back pain and he was pulling out an ODI and he said, this is funny, this keeps talking about my pain and I don't have pain. And I was like, why are you here? And he's like, I'm scared of getting hurt again. And it was just like, oh, no. Yeah, what, what did you do? Uh, with, with that, he actually, we actually only worked together two times. And I think part of that was he sort of realized he didn't need to come to physical therapy. At least that's my hope. But what I ended up doing is more of a conditioning program of we even, like, ran on the treadmill. Like, we ran, like, half a mile on the treadmill. We did some deadlifts. We did lunges. We actually, he did, like, a 40-second plank. I will say one thing that I have a bad habit of is over dosing patients and that was a reason that he was sore for like two three days after this and he, he did send me a nice text being like you like worked me really hard like i'm sore in a good way type of thing was the gist of the text which is like okay that's good but still like don't be like me and just be like oh you're fine let's go crazy because they haven't like think about physical activity and what they've done before but i went more the conditioning route with this patient yeah, you know, you, you, you frame that in a way that is, um, obviously it's, it's modest and you, you mentioned that like things you could do better, but at the same time, if you take a step back from that, they, the text they sent you in and of itself shows that they feel happy that they can do what they just did. Yeah. And like, yes, they were sore. They didn't feel great coming out of it, but they recognized that as like a muscular soreness as a, oh, look, I did something I don't usually do and I worked hard. And like, yeah, they don't want to feel great. I mean, they're not going to feel great coming out of that, but at the same time, that must have been really empowering for this patient. I don't want to speak for them. Obviously, I never met them or anything, but I mean, if I had chronic low back pain and I was causing it hurt again and... I felt safe in the clinical environment and I did deadlifts and squats and running and planks and I walked out not hurting. Yeah, maybe it could have been a slightly lower dose, but at the same time, I think goal was accomplished. I mean, it's it's one of those things that he didn't come back and I haven't heard anything and he hasn't come back to the clinic, which, you know, I'm never going to assume that, oh, they're good. You know, maybe he'll have an acute low back pain stint and need to, hopefully he can do some of the strategies. That's something too, like focus on being like, hey, if this ever happens again, like go back to these things and see if you can manage it on your own. Yeah, exactly. I think 
that is something that is this seems to be underutilized and I at least in my experience my very limited experience and something I've tried to be better about is providing tools for patients to use in the onset of pain not like get out of jail free card necessarily but something that makes them feel like they're in control of the situation so when like the question Jacob posed was someone that's scared to get hurt again that in of itself shows that they don't feel like they're in control of this thing they're not empowered for whatever reason and maybe they got hurt and they had to stop running for three months and now they're scared to run again and they didn't see anyone really they saw someone and for whatever reason they didn't feel empowered walking out of that but at the end of the day the initial consult should be aimed to reduce the perceived threat that this person has around their activity they're worried about getting hurt doing and then share a plan of care that, like you mentioned before, you guys create together, mm -hmm. which in and of itself should empower the patient. It should give them some semblance of control and power over this situation that they walk in feeling like they can't control. And this might, it might take some of that T&E, some of that education to kind of reshape beliefs a little bit and maybe challenge some things here or there and maybe like expectation violation and that's a whole other topic. But the idea is hopefully to reduce some anxiety around movement and exercise and give them hope, a light at the end of the tunnel. We need to remember that these people coming in, it's kind of like I mentioned before, everyone knows what pain is. And there was this moment, an inflection point, when they decided they needed to reach out to someone because they couldn't handle this on their own. They sought out a professional, an expert to help guide them. Like, I, like Jacob said before, be someone's Gandalf. And that's what we can do. We are here to guide these people. This is their experience and their initial in, um, visit. Give us a little bit of insight in their lives, their beliefs, their thoughts around their pain. But we can't exert our will, our force upon them. This is, this is their life to live. And something from the Sticks and Stones article that was also very, very um, salient to me was you need to help create what he deemed therapeutic emplotment. You need to create a story where they are the protagonist. You have to help them write the story where they are the hero that is enabled and empowered to live the life that they want to. They get to go slay the dragon. They get to go run the marathon, whatever they want to do. We're here to help them get there. Yeah, so some final thoughts that I just had. Like, if you're a student PT listen to this, a PT listen to this, like, just think this is not like beat yourself up time if you're not doing this or anything like like for example there's things that i've said and done it's more self-reflection actually thinking why you're doing the things you're doing like think critically and don't just do things because that's what you've always seen and also look in the research look in articles like these that we have like try to push yourself to become better it is so hard to keep up the research though it i is. mean even as students when we have it feels like you don't have free time but i know relative to people that are actually working we do have free time but articles like this like I said we're gonna leak in the show notes like these perspectives these narrative reviews these are these are powerful because they take a lot of the research and they summarize and they boil it down to here's what we think is truly important here so we can help people and this is usually written by experts in the field I mean the Diner article, Mark Cardell and Adrian Lowe are both secondary authors on this article, and those are both powerhouses in this field. And every part of MSK Rehab is going to have narrative reviews like this. And, I mean, I can think of, like, neck reviews, low back reviews, 
shoulder, elbow, wrist reviews, and that is a great way to kind of get a summation of the state of literature, at least at the moment that it was written, and it gives you a jumping off point. You can go look at the citations. You can even maybe create your own thoughts and just go from there. I mean, that's all it is. We're constantly learning. That's what all this is, this podcast. We're here just to learn from each other, which is why when we say we want critiques, it's we want to learn from each other. We're just here throwing ideas out there, see what sticks. And one thing I didn't mention on the first episode is like, if there's questions you ask your patients, like let us know because there's so many different ways or even analogies. Like that's super powerful to have different analogies, different ways to say things. And an analogy may not work. Like one analogy may not work, but the other one works for the different patient. Oh yeah. Here's a great example. Actually, literally two days ago, I was talking to, um, another student that I was going to be treating my pro bono, uh, client slash patient with. And I was like, yeah, you know, pain is like a, like an oversensitive aftermarket car alarm. And she just looked at me just like blank face. And I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? You don't know what that is. You know, like the wind blows, and the car alarm goes off. She's like, I have no idea you're talking about. I was like, okay, wait. And then I thought a little bit, it's like, we both cook. I, I have experience as a cook. I worked as a line cook and a prep cook. And she, she's really into cooking as well. I was like, okay, think about it like this. Think about an oversensitive fire alarm that's right above the stove. And there's no fire, we're searing a steak here, but the alarm goes off because it thinks there's a fire, it thinks there's a threat. So if you can find something that's more relevant to the person in front of you, I think that is more powerful than anything else. And I have such a limited experience, such a limited life experience, anything else that I can get to kind of throw ammo in that would be awesome. And that's why we need feedback. And that's why we're gonna have clinicians on the podcast going forward because we don't know anything at the end of the day and everyone else is very, very informed as well. So we want to just create a place where we can learn from each other. Yep. Completely agree. So thank you all for listening to PT on the rocks pod. You can also follow us on Instagram at PT on the rocks. Again, give us your critiques on the podcast and again, have a fantastic week.